Genesis chapter 30. We begin in verse 25. And it came to pass when Rachel had borne Joseph, that Jacob said unto Laban, Send me away that I may go unto mine own place, into my country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served thee, and let me go, for thou knowest my service which I have done thee. And Laban said unto him, I pray thee, if I have found favor in thine eyes, tarry, for I have learned by experience that the Lord hath blessed me for thy sake. And he said, Appoint me thy wages, and I will give it. And he said unto him, Thou knowest how I have served thee, and how thy cattle was with me. For it was little which thou hadst before I came, and it is now increased unto a multitude. And the Lord hath blessed thee since my coming. And now when shall I provide for mine own house also? And he said, What shall I give thee? And Jacob said, Thou shalt not give me anything. If thou wilt do this thing for me, I will again feed and keep thy flock. I will pass through all thy flock today, removing from thence all the speckled and spotted cattle, and all the brown cattle among the sheep, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and of such shall be my hire. So shall my righteousness answer for me in time to come, when it shall come for my hire before thy face, every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats, and brown among the sheep, that shall be counted stolen with me. And Laban said, Behold, I would, it might be according to thy word. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 34. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word. In verse 30, Jacob asks this question to Laban, his father-in-law. When shall I provide for mine own house also? When shall I provide for mine own house also? I think the text reveals to us that Jacob had developed, by that time in his life, something of a strong parental instinct. He sensed the primary obligation that every father senses or should sense which is the obligation to provide for his household. His concern for his family shows a contrasting maturity to his earlier days when he cunningly tricked his brother out of his birthright and later robbed him of his blessing. The image that one gets of Jacob in the earlier chapters of the narrative from Genesis is that he was something of a cunning and carefree mama's boy. And I think you could call him that. He wasn't particularly masculine or aggressive, especially when compared to his brother Esau. He was undoubtedly the type of child that knew how to put forth the image to his parents that he was subject to them, but who could nevertheless behave very mischievously and subtly when he was out of their view. Children like this quite often get away with much more than their siblings. Not hard to envision uh, the home of Jacob's parents, Isaac and Rebekah, as being a home where Esau was probably constantly punished, and Jacob was probably often praised. 
and only Jacob and Esau would know the inequity of that situation. And when the time came that Jacob had to flee from his home for fear of his brother's wrath, the narrative seems to at least imply that it wasn't until that time that Jacob developed any real spiritual interests. It's in chapter 28 that the Lord appears to him in a dream and conveys to him the covenant promises that had been conveyed to Abraham and Isaac. And in verse 20 of that chapter, we read of Jacob that he vowed a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. It would be very tempting to park there and deal with all that's wrong in that kind of vow, but uh, I will save that for another occasion. In the chapter we've just read from this afternoon, in chapter 30, we find the account of Jacob's household being multiplied greatly. It's certainly not an ideal picture that we're given in the narrative. It was never God's design for man to have more than one wife the way Jacob had. Nor do I take it to be God's design that maidservants were to be surrogate mothers. The narrative enables us to see the tension that existed in Jacob's household through the rivalries of his wives. It does not appear to be a very harmonious picture at all. When all is said and done, however, the once cunning and crafty, uh, carefree mama's boy now finds himself being the head of a very large household. And this in turn stirs within him a sense of responsibility toward his wives and his children. He shows a certain maturity in our text, that he didn't show earlier. And quite often it is the addition of children to a marriage that so compels a father to sense the seriousness and solemnity of the responsibility that becomes his portion. He certainly ought to sense that responsibility if he doesn't. The temporal as well as the spiritual care of immortal souls is given to him by God. From a human perspective, one might argue that the degree to which he takes seriously his role as a father will have an impact on the eternal destiny of his children. Your children, you have heard it said, are lent to you by the Lord, that you may teach by precept and by example that God is very great and that our need for Christ and salvation is very real. And so the question that is in our text raised by Jacob and put to his father-in-law Laban is also a question that can and should be put to every father. When shall I provide for mine own house also? When shall I provide for my own house? What I want to do today in the moments that remain is to analyze this text by noting from it the nature of the duty that's called for in the text, as well as the challenge presented in that duty. So let's look first of all at the nature of the duty of providing for our households. You may recall, if you know the narrative, 
that when Jacob left his parents, he left with little or nothing. He didn't bring great wealth with him or large herds. He basically showed up at the doorstep of Laban, as it were, with nothing. The narrative further indicates that Laban didn't have all that much either. You look at what verse 30 says. This is Jacob speaking to his father-in-law. For it was little which thou hadst before I came, and it is now increased unto a multitude. Such had been the blessing of God upon Jacob's labors that he was able to make his father-in-law wealthy. The time was upon Jacob, however, to launch out on his own and to take care of his own family. I think the truth of Genesis 2 and verse 24 is probably stamped instinctively on the hearts of men, where it says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Jacob had, of course, left his father and mother. Now it was time for him to leave his father-in-law as well. He was able and willing now to provide for his own. And the thing that I want you to see from the text is that the nature of a father's duty is to provide the material substance for his family. It's for that reason that he is sometimes known and called the breadwinner of the family. He's the one ordinarily who primarily provides the food, the clothing, the shelter, etc. He's the one that enables the home to keep the lights turned on, the water running, the air conditioner, or the furnace, whatever the case may be, going. He keeps the cars in running order, makes sure they're insured. He's responsible to make sure that bills are paid and that his family is secure. All of these things, of course, call for great time and effort. None of this happens automatically. And I'm afraid that children do not realize that until they reach the point where they themselves become parents. Then uh, what a healthy appreciation you gain for your parents once you become one yourself. And you realize all that goes into things that you tend to take so much for granted. And I dare say that most of a father's time is spent in order to provide the various things that I've just described. In many, and even most cases, especially where the father is the exclusive breadwinner, he is out of the house early in the morning, he will not return till late in the evening. I remember from my days in the printing industry how dependent I was on overtime. Forty hours a week just wouldn't cut it. I needed at least 50, even more if I could get them, in order to provide all that my household needed. And I believe that one of the things that accompanies the changes that are wrought in the life of a saved sinner is a transformed work ethic. The Christian has come to know and appreciate that his work can and should be viewed as his service to his Savior. He demonstrates a good testimony through honesty and integrity and effort. He isn't simply motivated by the desire to make money. He possesses a higher aim in his work. 
He aims to lead others to think highly of God and of Christ. He also aims, of course, to meet his responsibilities to his family. And so he exerts himself with God's help and then aim for God's glory. That's just a part of salvation. That's just a part of what it means to be a Christian. And I know this through my own experience. I was pathetic as a worker before the Lord saved me. I did gain this work ethic when the Lord, by his grace, opened my heart to the truth. And all of a sudden I realized I had a, uh, I had a way to serve. I didn't have to become a minister. I didn't have to teach a Sunday school class. I didn't have to be any kind of administrator. All I had to do was work with integrity and industry and effort with an aim for God's glory. And this is my service to Christ. And so is it yours. When it comes to this part of the duty of dads, I'm glad to be able to Thank God for industrious fathers, even in our little church family here. And among the things I pray for when I engage in my pastoral duty to pray for the heads of the homes of our congregation is that the Lord will continue to give strength and that he'll prosper our men in their labors, and that he also may see fit to prosper the places where our men work for the sake of his servants who work in the various places, so that they may bring glory to Christ and be enabled to provide for their families, and I might add, to provide for their church as well. So we have this aspect of the duty of fathers the duty to provide the material things for their wives and children. Let me add here that this is not the only thing that fathers are called on to provide for their families. They're called on to provide spiritually for their families as well. They bear a spiritual responsibility to their wives and children that is at least as important, indeed arguably more important, than their material responsibility. I'm struck by a text in Isaiah 38 and verse 19, which reads, The living, the living, he shall praise thee as I do this day. The father to the children shall make known thy truth. The father to the children Do you catch that duty? Shall make known thy truth. It is the fathers that are addressed by Paul in Ephesians 6 and verse 4, where he writes, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It is the example of Abraham that's given to us in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 19, where we find God's testimony about Abraham. For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord. And while I have no particular pastoral concerns about the way our dads provide for their families materially, I must confess that I do get at least a little concerned, and I'm quite sure that our fathers face the very real temptation of treating that particular aspect of their duty as if it was the entire substance of their duty. It is not. 
and to the degree dads treat it as if it was, to that same degree dads are being negligent in their duty to provide for their homes. It will not do, you see, to have your children fed and clothed and sheltered so that they may, in the end, be condemned to hell because they were either not adequately taught or because the teaching was accompanied by so much hypocrisy and love for the world that they learned to despise rather than embrace the religion of their father. It's important, therefore, that fathers recognize the entirety of their duty They are called on to provide, and not merely to provide materially, but to provide materially and spiritually for the well-being of their family. Let me press the issue even a little bit further by noting next and finally the challenge that this duty poses. The challenge that this duty poses. I'm sure this point could call for much more than the treatment I'm going to give it as just a point in a sermon. But let me at least highlight one thing in particular that I see as a challenge that fathers face when it comes to providing for their homes. I can state it in a single word. That word is distraction. Fathers face the challenge of distraction. In the portion we read from Genesis 30, it's plain to see that in Jacob's case, there was the challenge of distraction, and this distraction was a major one. Basically, all of Jacob's time and effort was going toward his father-in-law. He was the major contributor to making Laban rich. The narrative makes it plain that Jacob had entered into a kind of employee-to-employer relationship with Laban, And he had been such a good employee that Laban did not want to let him go. So much so that he was willing to allow Jacob great leverage in negotiating if only Jacob would continue with him. Appoint me thy wages, Laban says in verse 28, and I will give it. Oh, what a powerful position to be put in, huh? I'm sure that uh, a number of you men would Heave a sigh that would say, oh, that my employer would approach me that way. Ask for whatever you want, and I'll give it. It certainly makes for a good testimony when an employee becomes valuable to his employer. It makes for an even better testimony when the employer is able to see the hand of God behind his valued employee. Note what Laban says back in verse 27. And Laban said unto him, I pray thee, if I have found favor in thine eyes, tarry, for I have learned by experience that the Lord hath blessed me for thy sake. Oh, that we would convey such testimonies to those that hire us, that they could perceive in us, not merely that we're industrious, not merely that we have integrity, but that the Lord is with us and that the Lord blesses the company for our sake. That ought to be the goal of every Christian employee, to be able to convey to his boss, whether it be the foreman, the manager, the owner of the company. Ideally, it should be the goal to convey to everyone above him as well as everyone beneath him, not to mention everyone around him, that it is the Lord who blesses and who prospers. 
Oh, may our labors be backed by our lives and our words to such a degree that Laban's confession and experience becomes the confession and experience of those that we work with and work for. That part is well and good. But the challenge comes in not allowing your energy and ambition, however highly it's thought of, to be a distraction to a father providing for his own home. I think many of you know how the rationale works. You work long, you work hard, you do all that's expected of you and more, but in the meantime things are going untended at home, especially spiritual things. Your spouse does the best she can. She's very busy too, and she wishes that the head of the home would take the lead in spiritual things. He is supposed to. He knows that, and she knows that. There's no dispute about what the Scripture teaches in that regard. The head of every man is Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11.3, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. The very practice of head covering and worship, which we observe in this church, is designed to be the symbolic way in which we acknowledge this divinely ordained structure. And if the wife, under the strain of her duties, meekly suggests to her husband that he really needs to think about taking up his part of his duty to provide for the spiritual well-being of his family, what would you say would be the common reply? Well, his reply most often would be, I'm the breadwinner. He's doing all in his power to provide for the material needs of his family. It takes money to put food on the table, he may remind his wife. And clothing is expensive, and there are bills to be paid. And so he excuses himself from a vital aspect of his duty by appealing to the other aspect of his duty, which is, to be sure, a legitimate aspect of his duty also. The point I'm now trying to press, however, is that if he's not careful, one aspect of his duty can become a distraction to the other part of his duty, which, as I say, is equally, if not more important than the other, and this is the challenge of the duty to provide to provide spiritually for his household, the challenge of making sure that he doesn't skimp on his spiritual responsibilities. He must make sure that he doesn't flatter himself into thinking he's meeting his responsibility if, in fact, one part of his responsibility has become a distraction to the other part of his responsibility. I remember from my days in the printing industry, there was a man that I worked with who was most brilliant when it came to electronic pre-press work. This man knew it all. He was in the front of it all and had a good working knowledge of computer technology, which at that time was just coming to the fore in the printing industry. The thing I remember about this man was how devoted he was to his family. I don't know that. In fact, I'm pretty sure he wasn't even a Christian. But he was a devoted family man, nevertheless, 
Indeed, I'm afraid in some respects he would put many Christian fathers to shame. Now, you know anything about the printing industry? And I don't suppose that this is unique to the printing industry. But in the printing industry, uh, just about every day you operate in what is known as the emergency mode. Okay, every job is an emergency. Deadlines have to be met or the world stops turning. And if the world stops turning, then you are responsible. You want to be responsible for the world stop turning? Um, well, get skimpy on your work then. That's the mindset. That's the culture. And because this particular man that I have in mind now was so brilliant in his knowledge of desktop publishing, he was called on constantly to come in early, to stay late, to come in on Saturdays, even Sundays, if they could get him. And the thing I found so impressive about this man is that he always held his ground when it came to the priorities of his family. Keep in mind that we're not talking about a Christian even here. He might come in on a Saturday, but if his son had a ball game at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, he wasn't going to miss it, world-stopping emergencies notwithstanding. And you know something? He assigns priority to his family in such a way that it never cost him the respect of anyone Oh, it definitely would irritate a foreman or a sales rep on occasion, but not to the point where anybody really blamed him for being devoted to his family. He escaped the temptation that many Christian fathers are overtaken by, which is the temptation to make an idol out of their work. Oh, it's a wonderful thing if a father is so blessed of the Lord that he's able to devote himself in his work to something he enjoys. But when the blessing, contrary to his thinking, is actually leading to his failure to provide for his family, then his blessing has become the devil's leverage for stealing his children, threatening his marriage, and ultimately destroying his family. What then does the challenge amount to? I think I can state it very simply by saying the challenge amounts to fathers taking their spiritual duties seriously. Some men find it difficult to say no to anything that's asked of them by their employers. Some men find it difficult to postpone something that's work-related in order to devote themselves to their families and in the short run, there may not seem to be any immediate consequence to such negligence. That's how the devil clouds the issue. He blinds fathers to the long-term effects of their spiritual negligence by making them think that there are no ill effects on wives and children. And the longer a father allows himself to fall prey to the devil's delusion, the more he fails to establish any kind of consistency to his spiritual endeavors. Oh, may God help us all to wake up if this describes us. May God clear your head of the devil's fog before it costs you dearly. 
May the Lord empower us all to rise to the challenge of providing all that we need to provide for our families. When shall I provide for my family also? Jacob wanted to know. It's a question, you know, that God himself puts to us. When will you provide for your family? When will you rise to the challenge of meeting your total obligation when it comes to providing? And so, fathers, you have a great duty to perform. Don't deceive yourselves into thinking you're performing your duty merely by being the breadwinner in your home. That is part of your responsibility, a big part of it, a time-consuming part of it, one that we should not ever take for granted when it comes to honoring our fathers. But don't ever forget that your duty is more far-reaching than that. Don't allow yourselves to be distracted by the notion that a part of your duty can be substituted for your entire duty. And don't allow yourselves to be distracted from Christ. Things that may seem innocent enough and even laudable can become destructive if they, if they lure us from our focus on Christ. May God himself then stamp his word on our hearts and make us all what we should be to the honor of his name and to the praise of the glory of his grace. Let's pray. O Lord, as we bow now in thy presence, we do thank thee again that thou art our Father which art in heaven. And we thank thee, Lord, that in thy wisdom thou hast ordained the structure of the family. We are mindful, O Lord, that this doctrine is under attack these days. But we thank thee that we have the clear guidance of thy word as to what the family structure is and how the family structure is to function. O Lord, we pray that thou wilt help us to rise to do all of our duties. Be gracious to us when we fail. Forgive us of our sins Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank thee, Lord, that it is through the grace of God that we are enabled to start over again and again and again as thou dost cleanse and forgive. So, Lord, cleanse and forgive us and then strengthen and equip us to rise to the entirety of our duties. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.